for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. All right. Today, an old friend returns with a new book. Lanny Mulrath is the author of Mindfulness, which is a guide in the former Complete Idiots Guide series. It's now the In the Conscious Care Guides. Uh, there's quite a rebrand for you. You are no longer an idiot. You're now engaging in conscious care when you read this wonderful book. Lanny's been on the podcast many times. We've talked about fitness. We've talked about the plant-based journey. We've talked about her work um, advocacy for animals and activism in uh, rehabilitating elephants in Africa. And today we talk about mindfulness, meditation and presence. And she brings not just a sort of uh, improve yourself, improve your focus perspective, but really an entire ethical perspective to mindfulness. Like what are we being mindful for? Why are we trying to increase our capacity to be present for others, for ourselves, for the world. And it's a beautiful way to to look at kind of activism in, in a world that frankly <laughs> sucks in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things that make us angry, that can cause us frustration and, and fear and grief and despair and how to bring mindfulness, you know, to the battle, as it were, so that we can make the biggest impact we can make and remain whole ourselves or even heal in the process. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, Lanny Mulrath, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. Very nice to be here always. You just came out with a book on mindfulness, yeah. which, which I read um, two weeks ago in preparation and five Thank minutes you. Before- Five minutes before this call, I realized I had no idea where I'd put it. So I, I, was, I ran all around the house looking at all the usual spots. And then I came back to my office and it was on the shelf uh-huh. where, where it had not been two minutes earlier. Uh-huh. So probably I need, really need this book. So. Well, it's, I think our conversations, we don't ever need reference points. We always seem to just go wherever. <laughs> so that works for me. Well, I thought that too, but but just my state. So I was wondering yeah. if you could um, if you could take charge of this interview <laughs> and um, you know invite you yourself and me and our listeners into mindfulness because mm-hmm. I sh- I sure could use it after running around looking for the book. Well, I was thinking as I was waiting for you because uh, as I you know I just wrote you an e- short email saying, well, I am here and ready. Because I've been working on, I do volunteer work for Spirit Rock, which is the sister of the Insight Meditation place in Barrie, Massachusetts. And I'm helping catalog their videos. So I had something to do, but I thought, you know, maybe he's going to be ready early. So I'll just tell him I'm ready. Um, And I just realized that one of the gifts of mindfulness is that you rarely have feel like you're wasting time because there's always something to do. If you're, for example, let's say you're in a line waiting for something and rather than just buying into being impatient, you can observe and navigate what impatience is like. And that's how you kind of, that's how mindfully you can go right to the middle of it. So it becomes an experience and actually a growing experience because you can see how we get in our own way with many of our emotional habituated responses. 
So I was just sitting here waiting and I thought that is really nice. I rarely say, oh, what a waste of time that was, or, oh, I, you know, traffic, it, and as long as I allow enough time so I'm not late for an engagement, it's just useful time. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because I've, um, I started working on not pulling out my phone in lines. Uh-huh. Okay. But see, the first thing is to be aware of what I'm doing. I just, uh, I'm impatient with doing this. So I have to be doing something. And some of, you know, you're so busy. I was thinking, how do you do all that you are doing? And, and part of you has had to become very efficient with the use of your time, right? But then you become so scattered and so disjointed. And I think that I'll let you continue because that's really a, a, a valuable lesson. Yes, yeah, funny because I don't, I don't feel efficient and I don't feel productive. I, I feel like, honestly, a giant fraud a lot of the time that, yeah, I do a couple of things well, and thank God they get paid well hourly. But like, if I had to have a real job, I don't know if I could cope, <laughs> you know, but, but also, you know, like there's, there's that judging voice that I'm, that I'm hearing. Um, but the, tr the truth is that a lot of what I do feels like wasted time in the moment, even though I know it's not. So my meditation doesn't feel like wasted time. You know, it feels like, you know, like a workout, right? Because <laughs> it's hard. But things like, like, you know, relaxing or reading a book that's not necessarily on a topic or conversations or just sort of puttering around in the garden, like, it's clear to me that when I don't do those things, the quality of my work suffers. It becomes very brittle and, and whiny and demanding as opposed to, I think when I'm at my best, I'm generous. And I can only be generous when I give myself that time that, that, that feels to me based on external conditioning, like wasted time. You mean like puttering in the garden? Is that in the list? Yeah. Okay. You know, and that is another thing that has really come to my attention even more in these last few months while we, we moved to this new property um, in Sonoma on the flanks of Sonoma Mountain. And actually, we have one and a half acres here, but it, it's really 5,000 because our back gate opens to this huge uh, park, Annadale Park. So we're really immersed in nature here. But one of the challenges or one of the tasks with this property is it's massive, got massive oaks all around it. It has a meadow where we were able to put our veggie garden, but lots of oaks means lots of leaves and lots of twigs from windstorms. So it's a lot of making sure that the leaves are away from the house because of fire management. Here we are in California or anywhere in the country, it seems to be that's a situation. And just keeping things so that there's enough leaves to keep the natural layer for all the critters that hang out there. But so it's not like three feet deep, which can happen easy. Hmm. So I started to see that uh, when I would become annoyed with how, you know, I didn't, I just do this, you know, all these leaves are back. And I think of it as raking meditation or when there's, uh, because that's all meditation is. It's just being present with what you're doing. And it, it, when we compartmentalize it into uh, meditation is just not, is doing nothing and just sitting in quiet, that's an important training ground. But anything, any task you have, anything you're doing can be a point of meditation, just like chopping vegetables, washing dishes, 
scrubbing floors. And I invite everyone to do that. When you're at, next time you're at a task that you see as a waste of time chore that you have an aversion to, it's a new way to approach it because if you can bring your attention to it and our joy really comes from being completely in the present moment with what we're doing. And we know this from the resource research, research which I uh, talked about more in the Mindful Vegan where the research is done is remember, and we talked about this at that time too, where uh, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And the research actually tells us that if we are doing something that and our mind is somewhere else, even if it's an unpleasant task, which means our mind goes somewhere else, that we are less happy than if we have an unpleasant task and actually keep our attention on doing it. So over and over again, that came up in the research. So that's really kind of important. The research is um, wandering mind, unhappy mind. Anyone wants to look it up. But it really tells us a lot about that very feature of leaf raking meditation, (laughs) dishwashing meditation, uploading video, audio meditation. So Mm. anyway, maybe that'll bring some a, a different perspective on some of the things that we just think are waste of time or fillers or I want to get done with this so I can go do that. Because that's our life, isn't it? Isn't our life of uh, many of these tasks? And if we compartmentalize it, and that's the thing I don't want to do, and this is the thing I do want to do, um, it robs us of a lot of opportunity. I'm not perfect at it. I'm not saying I'm the, the, uh, the skillful example of being able to do this, but more and more, that is how my life is. And I like that. Mm. I just saw a a meme on Facebook today that uh, says the average retirement age is 66 and life expectancy is 78, which means if if the whole, if we do the whole thing for like 12 years of elderly leisure, like that's not really a good deal. (laughs) (laughs) We We want to sort of be here for the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the word retirement kind of has a bad rap anyway, because uh, I actually officially retired from classroom. When was that? 2007? What is that? 14 years ago? Yeah. It was after that, though, that, um, you know, that was my fourth book. So I had a different kind of productivity, but it does really is a wonderful thing to be able to have a, a space for slowing down and appreciate the, you know, leaf raking and the weeding meditation and those kinds of things so yeah well what's coming to me i've been listening to a bunch of podcasts from andrew huberman who's the huberman lab i think out of stanford which Mm. is uh, like a brain scientist and he talks about the different you know reward chemicals in the brain and there's a bunch of reward chemicals that are triggered by seeking right like dopamine is all about like go get something good and get but rewarded also, for it. Yeah. yeah. There's also like, you know, a whole uh, range around oxytocin, which is you get rewarded for enjoying what you have, mm-hmm. which is sort of equally important. Um, and I think we're very bad at that as a society. And sort of yes, have. especially in our culture. And this, I'm glad you bring this in because this is one of the really uh, fundamental things that I wanted to look at with the, the new mindfulness book. So the mindful vegan, which came out in what, 2017 was really focused on our relationship with food eating in our body and how mindfulness can make a difference in that because it was so fundamental to a radical change for me. But this book, the mindfulness book that was, I was actually asked by Penguin Random House to um, update and revise a mindfulness book that they had. 
it was actually, I think, in the dummies, you know, the, the, didn't you write an idiot's guide or a dummy guide to marketing? I wrote, I wrote dummies. I think, I think this was uh, the complete idiot's guide. Okay. It was complete. Yeah. The CIG for mindfulness, but that's kind of a passe kind of term. And, you know, that was a moment in time. And what they wanted was for it to become a conscious care guide. And I thought I read everything like pretty much about mindfulness out there because of research for the mindful vegan. But uh, this book I had not heard of before. So I thought, okay, well, um, I'd like to see it, you know, before I agree to it. So they sent me a copy and what I, I really love it. Um, and what I really wanted to focus on with it, which is why I was so pleased with it is the original was written by a Zen Buddhist monk. Hmm. And even though she is a lay person, she's married, has children. Um, she came from this perspective that I really want to elevate. And that is that some mindfulness needs to be based in a um, ethical and considerate kind of living to be connected to its origins. So much of what we have in our culture today is this kind of, I call it mindfulness. Hmm. Like I'll meditate so I can get a better job. I'll meditate so I can have better sex. I can meditate so my body can be better. Just like what you were just talking about. It's like um, acquisition mentality to acquire something because that's what's embedded in our culture. We improve, we get better, we acquire uh, it's really, you know, really solidly set. So when I saw the material that she had, and I made many other changes, I changed the syntax. Uh, we, we work in shorter phrases now, uh, not longer sentence. Um, but I wanted to elevate the idea of the ethical background to mindfulness practice. So to clarify what that means, in the early days of this mindfulness practice, which now has gone, just it's gone to stress reduction, it's gone to all these really useful purposes. But originally for the, um, the monks that were trained in mindfulness practice, they actually needed to learn and demonstrate mindful living in terms of, um, this is where the eightfold path comes in, like wise speech, wise uh, concentration, wise livelihood or right livelihood. For example, uh, there were certain kinds of livelihood that were not conducive to becoming a monk. And that would be anything that, that really ripped off people, other people, obviously uh, working in a slaughterhouse, uh, killing things, taking anything like that, that was blatantly harmful was not, it was not something you would have as your, and the reason for this is because having this um, basic fundamental, um, I, I want to use the word morality, but ethical, I really like the word ethics because we kind of connect with what that means. Um, if you didn't follow or uh, cultivate wise speech and wise action and wise livelihood, they were disturbing to your meditations. For example, Monks would take on the um, commitment to not take that which is not freely given. We might call that don't steal. Mm. But listen to that. Not to take that which is not freely given. 
So that could be um, a taking shoplifting, taking something, or it could be taking someone's time that is not freely given. And that's a new way to be sensitive to our other human beings, isn't it? Not only their physical resources, but also um, their emotional and their time resources. So not to take that which is freely given. But it also uh, applies to just stealing stuff. When I think back to, um, I remember when I was in seventh grade, I remember this still so vividly as I stole a lipstick in a drugstore. Not that I couldn't afford it, but I don't know. And I just felt so terrible. And I still feel terrible when I remember that moment. And I don't remember if I took it back or what happened to it. But that kind of experience disrupts what we are seeking to uh, realize in our life with uh, being peaceful and calm and and sitting in your meditation. When things are agitating you, when you feel guilty about something, um, when you've had um, a an episode with anger, any of these strong emotions that tend to take us away from calm and center, uh, it affects those things. So that's why the monks were, they were clearly advised about how to live ethically so that their meditations and their service could be better. I didn't hear anything you said after meditation will give me better sex. Okay, well, that's the lesson for today, huh? Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> that's, that's a, it's such a beautiful approach, but it also, it's also a really high standard. The more mindful you are, the more you become aware of the harm you're doing, right? Because, like, you know, if I'm just living a regular consumer life and I, you know, hold, raise up the flag on the fourth and, you know, like, it's very easy. Like, I don't hurt anybody. I go to work to, with, you know, at the company and I do my thing and I'm nice to people. Um, but the more mindful we become, the more we see larger patterns. You know, there are companies we shouldn't be working for, right? Yeah. There, there are products that should not exist. Yeah. Right? The thing is that whether you're aware of it or not, everyone's in pain. And I think that when you become aware of the, the not always fully in pain all the time, but we all experience a degree of misery and suffering, whether it's getting stuck in the traffic or having a, a fight with a loved one or losing a job or you know, getting in our own way with sabotage within any of our health habits that we're trying to do. Those are all very painful experiences. And that's part of of human suffering. So when you don't become aware of how you might be doing that, or how you could actually shift that into another way of being, then you're still in difficulty and in suffering. So it's not like you if you don't, if you don't, aren't aware of it, that you're not going to have negative consequences from it. Right? Well, you know, in in, in our family, the, the metaphor um, was, um, we used to go on vacation with my mother, who, as she, as she got older, um, she was always a, you know, a feisty person. Um, she had a lot of, of, you know, trauma from being a child of the Holocaust. And she would, we would, she would like take many bags with her. Like, and then she'd walk through the airport, like destiny, you know, really focused on her destination. <laughs> and like, she would like knock into people left and right. Huh. And, 
And so, you know, my, my, she had all these bags around her and she, and she wasn't, she wasn't noticing the impact she was like, she was focused on where she was going destination. And so, you know, I remember my, my niece was, wrote a uh, wrote a piece saying like we never know whether to go ahead of her and like warn people or go to go behind her and apologize to people and clean up the mess <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's like all of us like we're all going through life that's with- a good <laughs> allegory banging into people with our bags that's good right and and so like one of the resistances to mindfulness for me <laughs> is is like i don't want to be aware of that like, there's a there's a, uh, there's a a transition period where you're becoming more and more aware of how you're um, embedded in these webs of harm. Mm. You know, what do you do with that? Well, you can learn to make more conscious choices and you can also, but I think it's really important to have a practice where you connect with your, uh, you know, your Buddha nature. We all have Buddha ability, right? We all know what that means. (laughs) Don't we? Like I have one of my favorite teachers, Jill Satterberg, and I've been to several mindfulness retreats with her and she does somatic work, work on the body. And she says, you know, my family hates it when I'm a Buddhist, but they love it when I'm a Buddha. So (laughs) it's like, isn't that instantly understandable? So that's beautiful. I also, I also love the fact that you said, you know, that the, uh, the original author of this work is also, you know, married with children because, you know, in a sense, that's where mindfulness gets hard. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you want to be a monk up in a monastery, like, okay, that's great. But, you know, you're, you're, and there's a tradition, I guess, in, in a lot of Eastern traditions of, of people becoming monastic or ascetic, like leaving their families, mm-hmm. right? The Buddha, um, Bhante Dharmawara, uh, was a Cambodian monk who, you know, was diagnosed as being terminally ill in his 30s. And he just, you know, left his family, left his children, went out into the forest and bathed in green light and mm-hmm. became a great, great healer and guide. But there is this thing like you've got to, in these traditions that implies you've got to separate yourself from the world in order to achieve Buddha nature. And I love that there's a path. Yeah, I, and I think that's uh, that's actually rare occurrence compared to all of the people that are aspiring to cultivate that bootability within. Most people are just like you just talked about, just like you and me. We are juggling a million things. And actually, that's a richer place to realize this because it's being in the thick of things. It's being right in the middle of the mud. And that's where it really comes to fruition. And you, it's so organic and messy, but you can see how it can make a difference in people's lives when you do something as simple as, and this has been really big for me, uh, learning how to listen. We are all very much in a place of list, hearing people talk to us from a through our filter of our experience, which is something that you can't avoid because we do all come bring to a conversation our who we've been up till then. But we can start doing this. And I think that uh, you and I talked about this a little bit before too. You can start to become aware of, well, don't you hate it when you're talking to someone and they interrupt and finish your sentences for you? Most people don't like that. And we've all been guilty of it to some reason. So you can start to notice when you're listening to someone, 
does that urge come up in you if you haven't already done it, you know, finish her sentence or said, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I did and go on about your own story. If you can learn to or, or start to practice and that's all this is, it's a practice. It's not a perfect. It's a practice. The, pro- the skill of listening, which is one of the eightfold path is skillful listening. That is actually being present for someone else when they are speaking and uh, letting yourself get below your layer of your own filters. And you can start to notice, especially if you've done sitting practice, which connects you very clearly with things as they rise up with you, physical tension, mental reactions, you can notice, oh, I'm starting to have an aversion of what they're saying. Oh, I can, I know where they're going to go. And I want to, you know, add on to that or embellish or somehow making an assumption about what that person is saying. And this can oftentimes be incorrect. And the other person reads that. They feel that energetically. And you abort the ability to really connect with someone and listen to them by doing that. So I'm not, I'm getting better and better at it. And I'm learning how to practice that more. But especially around people that we're really familiar with, like our family members. Mm. And I remember back uh, when I was first going to mindfulness training and I've had a long, uh, my father isn't around anymore, but he and I had a long kind of contentious relationship and outguessing each other and wanting to be, you know, better than, or, you know, not like fathers and daughters everywhere. Right. But I remember after my first mindfulness retreat and I uh, met up with my parents and I'd had 10 days of like what you were talking about being away, silent retreat, a good opportunity to really, it's just you. And, you know, as John Kabat-Zinn says, wherever you go, there you are. I love that. Yeah, here I am again. (laughs) But I made a very conscious decision to just be present with my father as if he were someone I didn't know, as a stranger. How would I, if I sat down at a meal and I didn't know this person, how would I listen? Very differently than all the assumptions we make as a family member, because we've got them nailed, right? We know who they are. We know what they're doing. So that can be very helpful. It can change personal relationships with family members, uh, those you might be most contentious with, um, people at work. It doesn't mean you agree with what they say. It doesn't mean you doormat yourself. It simply means that you give them an opportunity to be who they are. And you'd be surprised how that opens up this space so that they're not feeling your resistance and, and you won't feel there so much. And I've seen it just work wonders. That's been my experience um, as a coach. Oh it's yeah. Been, Listening. Like, that's all you're, you're doing. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> one, one of the things that gets in my way as a coach is knowing the answer. And of course I always know the answer. Right. The minute they give me their problem, like the answer pops into my head, like, oh, you should do this. Or have you tried that? You know, or, or I know where they're going and I'm always wrong. Right. So really, so, really. Yeah. So, I mean, after years and years, I realized that my, my, doing, <laughs> my, my assumptions are always going to lead to dead ends. And so I catch myself like, oh, yeah, there's there's the knowledge. It can sit there. It's not hurting anybody. And now I got to find out what the truth is because the, 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 you know, the oh. fantasy playing out in my head is not the truth. So I find like being a coach is this constant practice of, 
of humility, which, which forced his listening. Because all of a sudden there's a, you know, by, by not indulging my fantasies about what's actually going on, I create a void. And the only cure for that is uh, connection. Yeah. Wow. And I bet you early on, I think back to my early years of coaching and how much I did that, you know, because we're supposed to have the answers because we've been through this before. But every human being is different, has a different experience. So I call that um, your story. Like when someone is talking to you and your story and stories come up from your own experience and from people, other people that you've coached whose stories you've experienced. And it's, it, it's, it's really a good practice in mindfulness, Howard. I congratulate you on being aware of that because that's huge to be aware of it and watch what you're doing and then learn how to listen better so you can actually be present for that person. But you know what? And that translates to our lives just with ourselves, because how many times have we, maybe we're struggling with something, maybe it's something about uh, work or personality or diet or exercise or anything. And we tend to get caught in a story about it or a story about someone who's wronged us and we just carry the story and loop it rather than letting yourself drop below the story, which is what happens when you're doing formal mindfulness meditation. And just to help people understand who this might be new to, when you take those few minutes of time every day, if possible, to practice getting some degree of mastery over your habits of thinking, which is what mindfulness practice is. It's just practicing getting some degree of mastery over it. And you have to be aware of what's going on first. And that's what happens in the early stages. But when you're sitting in formal practice and you're just uh, quietly breathing and noticing what is coming up and returning your attention to the point of focus, which is your breath or whatever kind of meditation you're doing, it's our stories that come up over and over again. And if you're, especially if you're in a very difficult day or moment or point in your life, it's very easy to run with the stories and start to rationalize and solve and figure out and blame and or self-blame. And those are all our stories. So if you're doing formal practice and you just notice those stories and then let them go by and you know, I'll come back to that later and just come back to being present with the moment, that starts to, tr to transfer to your active life when you're not doing formal meditation. So that our stories don't get in the way of all our communications, such as coaching or, you know, talking with a loved one or a family member or just anything we're encountering in our daily life. Mm -hmm. So my sense of mindlessness or whatever the opposite of mindfulness <laughs> is, is it's a, it's a sort of hypervigilance um, around, you know, worrying about the past so I can predict the future. Um, so I'm wondering, I've done a lot of work in the last couple of years on trauma. Hmm. And like one of the things I've, you know, for, for people who have trauma, whether capital T or small t trauma, is when, when, when it's unresolved, your whole, your own body feels like a war zone. And so being present in it feels unsafe. And so like daydreaming 
or these stories that are very predictable, as you know, Stephen Hayes, the founder of ACT, calls it our, our longing for coherence. Like the story provides something to us. How do you help people or do you recommend for people who, who are, you know, have unhealed trauma, which I would say is to some extent, all of us. Um, yeah. <laughs> how do we start feeling safe in our own heads? So that you mean, so if you're doing quiet meditation and something arises that you don't feel that you can do actually do that. Yeah, I guess or... as, as a start. Okay. Uh, what happens is, it becomes a place of practice. And if you find that things, uh, traumas emerge, and I'm not a trained therapist, so I'm not in the position to tell or, you know, counsel someone what they should do in terms of therapy, which by the way, is a great adjunct. And many therapists are using mindfulness training because together they allow awareness, but they also give you certain skills that therapists can do. So if you find that things start to come up that are just too difficult and traumatic, you can actually not feel pressured to have to go there today just to try to work with the things that are more manageable for you. Another thing that's very helpful is to do some kind of movement. And there is walking meditation where you're doing the returning your attention to the moment while you're walking. But any kind of neurophysical exercise, which is one of the five categories of required exercise by the American College of Sports Medicine. There's cardio, there's weight training or resistance training, there's flexibility training, all one of all those includes neuromotor. And those are the kind of skills like yoga and Tai Chi and Feldenkrais and Pilates that really require connection to brain to body can very help be very helpful for people who find it too difficult to be still with whatever's coming up, because movement can help change energy and um, morph it in another way. So that's kind of a potpourri answer. Hopefully that was helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I love the idea of the, you know, the body being involved. Um, you know, I've, I've started doing a kettlebell training. Mm. You'd think the kettlebells are either, you know, it's if you depending on how heavy and how fast you're going, it's either oh, they're tough. You know, they're tough. Cardio or resistance. I find it's very neuromuscular. Yeah. And yeah. You do it badly and you really hurt yourself. Like well, okay. that's yeah. Oh, excuse me. Go ahead. That's exactly right. I, I wanted to tack on to what I said that I think all physical activity is brain body. And that's why we feel so much better if we just go on a walk or a run. It doesn't mean we have to think about every step, but these, the modalities that require you really focus on exactly what you're doing, which is what you're saying with kettlebells, you can, because you're requiring your core muscles to control you, you're not using a piece of equipment and you're swinging something around much of the time that it is easy to let yourself go out of alignment or let a strong muscle take over and injure yourself. So it's good though. That's good work. Are you working with a trainer or you just got some bells and go for it? Oh, no, I'm working with the online, online training. Oh, good. Yeah. It feels really good. Um, but it's still a little scary. I think I, think I would like like a, a person, you know, giving me 360 feedback. And, uh, yeah. Is it a, in a group or is it one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, it's a small group. Yeah, it might be, you know, maybe you could do that somewhere along the line as all this uh, pandemic stuff shakes down is to actually just meet with a coach for a session or two 
and mm. probably get some really good tips and information they can give you feedback on your ergonomics you know the the wise use of your positioning for what you're doing feels good to be strong though physical strength is an important thing to maintain and uh we don't have to go all out and be super human but it's a helper in life yeah i'm also doing with with this online training it's a kind of yoga i'm not sure what if it's what, what the analogs hmm. are the but it's we're holding a position for 45 seconds and then resting for 15 seconds. Mm. 45 seconds takes hours. Oh, gosh. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so, so many things going on for me mentally. Mm-hmm. What, how many seconds has it been? When is this over? And then all the different points. So, you know, straight legs, um, shoulders away from ears. You know, so I can kind of like go back through it because I also I also did a course on um, chi running, hmm. which is sort of like tai chi applied yeah. running. Yeah. Um, and like you know, I I go for long runs, but I like to listen to something to take my mind off it because it's so boring. And and chi running was like, all right, you're constantly cycling through. Okay, is my chest in the right position? Are my you know mm-hmm. very mindful. Very mindful. And it was very. Like, it was like, oh, I don't want to. I just want to. I just, you know, Space I want to. Yeah, put my mind on a really long leash. Let it go. Listen to an exciting book, and let my body. Get yeah. Out. And it's it's. I find it very challenging to to do a two hour run without distraction. Well, we're kind of conditioned to seek that. Take your mind off what you're doing, so it'll pass. This is kind of connects to what we were saying earlier. So that it's over and you can get to something more important. And I still think, Howard, that we all need zone out time. I still think we all need a Netflix movie or a whatever. I don't think that's a bad thing. Sometimes you just need that kind of space. Like, okay, I need to take the edge off with this movie or this whatever, or let my mind space out. But the difference is that there's, you're aware of that. All right. I'm just kind of giving up any kind of mastery right now. I'm just going to relax and let my mind go. And Hmm. there's that awareness that is just so helpful to skillful living. Hmm. Yeah. I guess, you know, even the, the word mastery still implies a kind of dualism inside us. Like there's something inside me I have to master. Right. You know, I I mean, I, I assume there's, there's people who watch Netflix in a very spiritual way that doesn't look, <laughs> it's not like, you know, they're burning in oh, really? chanting, <laughs> but just, you know, like I remember going, I can't remember if we've <laughs> talked about this. We, right, the last time we talked about mindfulness is that I went on a med- like not a meditation retreat, but a sort of spiritual retreat. And we were asked a couple of days to have silent lunch to really just yeah. process what we were going through. And I remember sitting down for this lunch and, and like, oh, I'm so mindful and I'm going to like chew mindfully. And what I really was, was incredibly cringily self-aware of like, look at me lifting my fork to my mouth now, instead of actually sort of being right. There's a, there's a way in which I think we're, we're going for something very natural, right. As mm-hmm. opposed yeah. to something very contrived. How, do you- but you, yeah, but that was training ground. Maybe that's a, a, a step you had to go through to be able to be more at ease with being in touch with your hunger and your fullness and the deliciousness of the food and how nice it is really to just eat instead of doing a million other things at the same time. That's kind of like that raisin activity. Have you ever done that one 
where you're, you, it happens often at mindfulness trainings where you get a raisin and you put it in your mouth and you roll it around, you feel what it's like and you taste and it's like, oh God, just let me eat the raisin already, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and I never have taught that because I just, I always just had an aversion to that, but I understand it because it's exactly what you're saying about pick up the fork and put it in your mouth and you start to become aware though how how automated we are. The thing that came to me, if I could share my experience with mindful eating, that like I said earlier, that it was the big game changer for me in terms of my relationship with food eating and my body. And I went on that 10-day training, the silent meditation retreat. I was like 95 or some sometime in that last century. <laughs> but uh I remember I sat down, so of course, meals were in silence because the whole thing was in silence. And I sat down, to, it was about the third or fourth day. This is after no communications. You don't read, you don't write, you don't talk, you don't interact. It's just you. And I sat down to my plate of food and I, I, it was like I got punched in the stomach. I felt like I became so aware of how much tension I had around eating. Because of my long, colorful diet history of micromanaging what I ate, controlling, counting, one diet after another, those all start to accumulate this wall of tension around the simple experience of eating. And I just, oh, I'm going to cry now when I think about it. I just thought, oh, that's so sad that that is your experience. It really, I really wanted to change that. I said, I don't want that to be my experience around eating. Because you see, it had been for so long, but I wasn't aware of it because eating was always embedded with all this other, like we're talking about. So things come up when you start to pay attention. They aren't always fun and enlightenment, but they get you under some important layers. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, another word for mindfulness is sort of awareness. Yeah. Right. Without awareness, there's really no choice. But you can be aware without being mindful. It's like you can be aware that you're driving down the road, even though maybe you weren't, you know, you kind of uh, subconsciously aware that you are aware that you went in a car. That doesn't mean you're paying attention to your hands on the wheel, your turn. Go ahead. Continue. Well, yeah, because I was I was thinking in terms of awareness at the level at which I can make change. Right. Yeah. So that's that's to me that's a deeper level because we we want we, we don't our habits don't want us to be aware at that level because <laughs> right if I suddenly like pay attention if I'm suddenly mindful and tying my shoes mindfully I won't I don't know how to tie my shoes yeah <laughs> right that's well a- there is certain efficiency that we need to build up we don't want to have to think about every step of driving along the way right. for right. certain drive right. yourself nuts we want to be mindless for a lot of yeah. things. So that we have our, we have attentional reserves for what we need. Sure. Good thing. Go human brain, you know? (laughs) Yeah. When there's something that's not serving us, like a dysfunctional um, relationship with food, right? You could be, you could be mindless of that, unaware of that, or, uh, you know, aware cognitively, but not see how it's playing out in the moment when you have the choice. Yeah. Am I going to stuff my face with 30 raisins or am I going to place one and savor it. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, when I work with people on, okay, we're going to change my diet, I'm going to do something differently. Like we work really hard on it. Like what's the moment in which something's going to come up? 
and and what can you learn from that? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of this is based on um, work I've read and, and talked about with Judd Brewer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. That it's the mindfulness at those moments that gives us the capacity to make different choices. Yes, exactly. And he's really got done some great work and he has some apps out that have been very helpful to people. But I think that what's important here, what really comes up is how difficult it is to do that kind of thing without some kind of base training. It's like when we try to, I'm sure many people that are listening have, like me, had a long and colorful diet history and tried many different modalities of eating, counting this, counting that. And it can be, how do you break that cycle of having to have that kind of control that doesn't lead to a happy experience with food and eating? That's what kind of got down to baseline for me. So when you have some formal practice time with mindfulness practice, you can then actually, and I'm free speaking from personal experience, become aware when you're making a meal, when you're sitting, going to sit down and eat a meal, you can feel those stories, not just a a storyline, but that tension arising or that urge to control arising or that judgment about good food versus bad food. I have such an array of those in my past that starting to notice those coming up was huge for my recovery from thinking and living around food like that. And I still, it's made me to this day, I've shifted even more and more away from thinking about uh, being too connected with nutrition and healthy food and I eat healthy food, but I've expanded to not being so focused and cognizant of that. Part of that is because I've built up some good ability to make good choices around food, but I can still see the old part of the judgment, the grabbing, in, in, grasp, not grabbing, grasping in your mind that I just uh, am so happy to have dissolving from my experience around food and eating. Well, I think it's really important, though, that we need training around that because there's, yep, there's yep. movements around intuitive eating that are disastrous. Oh, God, you know, I read this book called The Only Diet There Is. I think I wrote it like, yeah, like how many are there really? I think this has been 25 years ago. And I don't know if you saw it or it was Sonia somebody. It was, she said it, they called it like it's the humming diet so that if food hums to you, you eat it. So if the donut's humming to you today, and who hasn't had a donut hum to them before, you eat it. And there was all these stories about, oh, yeah, I started doing the humming diet, and I lost 15 pounds because it's now. I, I agree with you. That intuitive thing, what intuitive? Whose intuition? Is it your old uh grasping, controlling, or just want to be free person who's saying, I should just eat this today? I agree. I hope I didn't hijack that. That's, I, you know, I really don't like that whole intuitive, unless it has a whole lot of substance and training behind it. I just don't think it's a good thing. It's too hard to tell what's, it's just like saying spontane, spontaneity, spontaneity is overrated. Isn't spont, if you're spontaneous, aren't you just doing the old stuff you used to always do, whether it was good or not? I mean, it's, it's, it's not the right, necessarily wise choice. It's just be spontaneous, the I humming mean- donut. 
<laughs> yeah, I interviewed uh, Stephen Nachmanovich, who's um, a uh, improvisational musician. He wrote these oh. beautiful, beautiful book, free, I think free play and the art of improvisation. And he was talking, and he was friends with like John Cage, and he was talking about people like you know John Cage or Jackson Pollock, who you know in in, in painting wanted to remove the influence of the artist. They wanted pure art. So they just did sort of random things, right? With, with Jackson, yeah. it was just, yeah. <laughs> you know, there was no intentionality to just throw the paint at the thing. John Cage would sometimes um, compose by like throwing dice. And the thing, and what Stephen Nachmanovich mm. pointed out is you can tell, you will always know a John Cage composition or a Jackson Pollock painting. Like if it was truly, if there wasn't their conditioning in it, they would all look completely different. But, mm. but you know, they had their signature. So yeah. like all of us have these signatures yeah. and they're not necessarily all bad. I mean, that's, it's, it's probably, yeah. you know, great. That's it's just good. where, where do we want to, you know, expand to grow, grow yeah. our acorn a little more into an oak. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Interesting. You should have experience, uh, the opportunity to experience a lot of people in this podcast. It's just astonishing to me, the breadth of connection that you've been able to, and that's a lot of books you've been reading. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's, you know, there was a, there was a short period of time, maybe three or four months where I got the idea that I wanted to be more popular than I was podcast wise. Like, uh, you know, like I was like, it's very Roll. competitive, I guess out there. Yeah. I had like rich role mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, how did he get, you know, Lance Armstrong or, or somebody, mm -hmm. you know, like, wow, that's really big. And, um, you know, and so I just, well, how do I do that? So I started being very strategic and I started um, like accepting requests from guests, like they're going to help me grow my podcast. Like they're well known or, you know. So people would tune in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's yeah. as far as it goes, I mean, there's definitely like famous people I want to talk to, but I discovered that the people that I was talking to for the purpose of growing my podcast, like I wasn't that interested. I wasn't, I wasn't learning that much. I wasn't having great conversations. I wasn't making connections. Why do you think that was? I think it's because I was doing it for the wrong reasons. Well, was, it, did they maybe have um, like talking points that, cause they, they've done it so much that it felt canned yeah. in a way. Yeah. I think we were both playing the game. Right. Like somebody, somebody reaches like, I, I, you know, I want to be on 12 podcasts and, and my PR person is going to send a pitch to you and they've never seen your podcast. They just came up on Apple and yeah. it looked like a good one. And we're both using each other. Yeah. Right. As, yeah. As how, how many did it take you to discover that was what was happening? Honestly, it took me way too many. Hmm. Like after the first one, had I been mindful? And realized I don't want to press publish. Like I'm like I always think like I have a couple of friends from high school whom it horrifies me that they subscribe to my podcast. <laughs> like, like people who know my bullshit. Yeah. And are gonna call me on it. And they're gonna, and it's not like a random <laughs> stranger telling me I'm an idiot, which happens all the time. It's not um the fans who write because they appreciate. This is like someone who cares about me saying you know, you got that wrong, or I really didn't like how you mm -hmm. did this, like stuff, that, stuff that, that makes me feel bad because it's true and helpful. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And so I was like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want that person to see this podcast. I wonder if I could like not email. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Selective distribution. Right. Which is terrible. <laughs> like I, I want to have, you know, I want this podcast to be about being present. Yeah. From some of the most beautiful, inspiring people on the planet. Well, Yours is very definitely different from uh, I've done a lot of interviews and it's always different experience with you because I feel you are not afraid to ask the question that comes up instead of putting it through a filter of how does it pertain to topic? How are they going to respond or what am I going to? And sometimes it's been really off the wall and it catches me off guard, but I really like that. Because what you're doing is just just being there right there right now. So I'm pleased to see that you saw that difference. And I also understand why you did that. I mean, you have a business to run and it's important for you to have an audience so that you can continue that. But that's a really interesting story. It'd be interesting to see if people listening could say, oh, that must have been one of those or, Hmm. you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, you know, there are days when I, I'm just off when I have a perfectly fine. Oh, no, you're kidding. Yeah, I never have days like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wish I I was one thing I would like is the guts to say, hey, I can't do it today. Because it feels it feels dismissive. Like if I called you 15 minutes before we were going to get on and say, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. Like maybe I could do it with you because. Oh, yeah. You know, I would say, well, fine. Yeah, because I understand. I think that's there's wisdom in that too. Anyway, if that comes up in the future, fine. Just let me know. Yeah, no, I know you're always good medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I always get something from this. Um, so the book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, can, you know, can, it's really it's it's broken up into sections about kind of what you need to know about mindfulness and. Uh, how to cultivate mindful awareness. It really is a good basic manual in that way, how to develop receptivity, working towards something bigger. But as I said, undercurrent to it is elevating the necessity for not just doing a practice to get better or more something else, but how to, it's about having more happiness and less um, misery in our lives. And however that shows up, I think misery and suffering or they, they, we think as Americans that those must be really big things like you're starving, you're homeless, or they're the things that we experience every day that bring us discomfort, whether it's relationships that are problematic or, um, you know, the discomfort of having to go to a bath, the bathroom here in the car. I mean, that's a kind of misery, isn't it? These are all things that we have to navigate. So the whole idea is here is how to increase your happiness decrease your stress and also um, decrease those problems that are causing us pain in our lives. So um, that's the whole idea behind it. Have you, has, has your sort of writing career and teaching career um, say sort of like you following your own needs in ter- like in terms of like, this is the thing I think I need right now, whether it was. Well, that's what you always want to write about, isn't it? And you know, you know, you are a writer and that's what you teach. It's kind of what you need to know. But, uh, you know, it's something. I, I, have you finished the question? I don't want to interrupt the question if you're still. No, I'm, just, I'm just thinking about. Um, yeah, no. I had, so like your um, 
you sort of have three writing phases that I've been aware of. One was the, the fitness person mm-hmm. who did fit quickies. And then you got into food, mm-hmm. plant-based journey. Um, my, and mindful vegan is now another shift. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what is the question? Well, that turned out to be a good kind of trilogy setup for me because from the beginning, um, and I teach, have said this in the first book, it's about food, fitness, and frame of mind. So actually now there's, I have workout in each of those and there's a lot of overlap. So I always address all three and all three of them, but that kind of turned out to be nice for me because I could dive into one and then another and then another. But if I relate that to, to my life right now, too, is I think um, you I don't think I've spoken with you since the campfire, the paradise fire that we went through mm. in Northern California. So everybody, no one used to know where paradise was and everybody knows Ron Howard made a movie about it. But, you know, our home did not burn, but our town sure did. And we had to escape through flames like everybody else. Some had it much worse than us. And we ended up have, being evacuated at a cousin's house for a long period of time. And there, there was a real shift that came about from that. I, I noticed my productivity really changed in terms of doing things because it was a time for recovery. And I noticed things that arose in me were a sense of wanting to be helpful to other people. Um, I started baking bread for people whenever I could, you know, to kind of give something and it was always appreciated something nice, but it kind of turned into that kind of thing. How can I support? And I, we didn't have, um, and then after that, the pandemic came in where it kind of curtailed all of our ability to travel and present at these things, but it all kind of fell in line at a place of pulling back, learning how to do weeding and leaf raking meditation, (laughs) bake bread for other people. Um, You know, it's just been more of a time like that for me. So that's kind of tagged on to the other part. Hmm. Right. I guess, you know, I'm thinking about like the shift into sort of mindfulness and you're like, you're, you're, you're part of a community of mindfulness people now, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I can't remember exactly like I was, you're with Tara Brock or, yeah, she, uh, I help have helped her at her events at Spirit Rock and she wrote a forward for the book. So yeah, that's a real honor because she's made such a difference for so many people in the mindfulness world. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like a shift of, of valence or identity a little bit mm-hmm. so when you're hanging out with fitness people or when you're hanging out with all of us vegans at, at veg fests and things, um, I guess is that, you know, it's, it feels like it's becoming more, more global or. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That's interesting. Like yeah. bigger, like, you know, we're both, um, it's okay to say, I guess we're both getting older. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I just turned 69. I think is that where I am. <laughs> how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Right? Yeah, I guess. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, I'm wondering also if there's a, um, like a wisdom of letting go that comes with, with getting older. Well, it is hard to say, cause I don't have a control group, right? Someone who had my experience or who didn't, but I think that's, that's really true. And I'm fortunate to be in a place now, having been a teacher for so long, that I have some resources for living 
that it allows me to have some some choices um, and to do the travel that we're doing for wildlife around the world. That's a big passion for my husband and I. So we've missed that the last year and a half, but hopefully that'll pick up again soon. Right. That, the last question I want to ask you. So, so, sure. you, so wildlife activism in Africa, which is facing all sorts of, of pressures from development to poaching to, you know, corrupt governments, paradise fire escape, you know, basically a climate refugee. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, vegan for many years working um, to end animal cruelty. Like how does, does mindfulness help you like not be angry? Oh gosh. That's at- it's hard. No, I'm it's, I'm still very angry about it, but you, and mindfulness doesn't mean that you're not angry. It just means that you become more skilled at learning how to use that in productive ways. Um, It's not an emotion that we're supposed to eschew or not have, but how can you navigate it in a way that doesn't destroy you? And that's going to be of some help. And that's where activism comes in. If we can give our resources to helping the orphan elephants and at the reintegration units, um, you know, we get financial resources, we give our physical help. That's a way to be productive with that sense, um, that anger. You know, I remember when I was teaching sixth grade and I was our, uh, one of the focuses of the curriculum was environmental education. And Greg and my husband, Greg, and I would take every November, we would go to Mexico and work with the sea turtles, you know, taking, monitoring the nest, tagging the turtles and everything. And uh, I was able to bring that experience back into the classroom with pictures of our experience and artifacts and all of that. And I actually hated doing that unit because I was so in pain and angry about what was happening to the sea turtles that I just dreaded November was, you know, sea turtle. And yet it was the opportunity to teach to, and by the way, connected so much with students. I had students who became vegetarian on their own after being associated. I never told anyone to do that, but they saw what I did and they learned about the animals. So that's a way to work with that anger and not just run away from it or sit in it, but actually do something productive with it. Mm. So I'm thinking about a, uh, a podcast guest I had last year, um, Tyson Yunkaporta, who is a um, uh, indigenous um, Australian, and he, you know, he looks at Western. He writes about Western culture from a, an indigenous perspective. This is like the the the, the, the single sin of of civilization is narcissism, which he defines as, "Yeah, I am greater than you. You are lesser than me." Mm-hmm. And that's the sin that I continually find myself locked in along with anger. So if Mm. I have anger at Mm. the corporations, anger Mm. at the politicians, anger at the poachers, it becomes like they're bad, they're wrong, you know, they're less than I am. And I find when I'm, when I can drop that, when I can't drop that, I have almost no impact. Like the only impact I would Mm. have is against force. So I'm wondering for you, you're, you know, you're facing the problem of sea turtles, which is sort of a a conceptual problem, but then there's actual humans doing things. Yeah. Well, that's hard, Howard. And I I agree with you because you can think, well, I have the the global perspective, but they're just thinking of themselves. Like they're the narcissist, not me. 
<laughs> and it's hard to see that humanity in people who are taking just seem to be taking blatant advantage. And I really do try to think, all right, what is it that, for example, the elephants, one of the big problems for the elephants is the human wildlife conflict. So because humans have encroached so much on the um, land with uh, herds, cattle, there's greenery gone, it's becoming, um, there's desertification happening in Africa. And so the elephants are going into the family gardens, because that's where there's some good food. Well, there we have a conflict, right? So the family then shoots an arrow at, shoots a bullet at, ensnares the elephant who is now uh, in a rescue situation or just dead and their babies are abandoned. It's just, it's horrific. So I realized these people are hungry and they need to feed their family. So how can that horror be how can there be a solution that I can be helpful in, in that context? And so by our work with the elephants is these reintegration units, what that means, or an elephant is orphaned because its mother has been, you know, killed or has died. They bring them up until they're three years of, of age, bottle fed, all of that. And then they move to a reintegration unit where they are moving in and out of the wild, and so that they can circulate with the wild animals. And then after seven years, they go to another place. And we actually now have elephants that have gone out to the wild, have babies and come back and bring their babies because they made it to the wild elephant and then bring them back to the keepers to show them the family. So this is how you can do a resource to, resource to build a rescue of this situation. Then there's the whole whole problem with environment and what about educating women so that we don't have these multiplying um, population situations, which is embedded in the culture. We do a lot of work with the Maasai, Maasai and their culture has, you know, you just have babies. It's kind of like back in the old West when we needed to have children here to work on the farm, right? That's your value. It's, it's very complex. Mm. It's very complex. So my answer to the, how do you make a difference or how do you deal with that anger is try to find what, who's making a difference where, and it's very, it can be very overwhelming and very depressing, very sad. So you just get up the next day and try again. It seems like mindfulness is a very powerful tool to, to sort of curb my, you know, for me to curb my impulse to do harm. Like, like it's going to, it's like just, just, just like eating crappy food. Like it feels yeah. really good in the moment to blame somebody else, <laughs> be right and they're wrong. Yeah. On Facebook and, and, and um, what do they call it? Uh, virtue signal. <laughs> right? Like as opposed to, you know, how am I contributing to the problem? Um, what to the, you know, what, as you say, what, what's the good? What are the, what are the worthy um, motivations of the people that I see as my enemy. Like, yeah, even to, to just to be strategic, I think we need, it's like a huge dose of mindfulness mm -hmm. just to, for me to, to see, oh boy, I'm so hooked right now. You know, thank God I don't have a gun. <laughs> like I would, you know, like, like the impulse to violence because I'm right yeah. and they're wrong. Well, it, it hooks back into or loops back into our conversation about listening. 
you know, there's a lot of ways to listen. And sometimes I'll just yell at the news and go, what an idiot. How could they do that? <laughs> you know? Hmm. Anything else you want to share about the book or mindfulness or your journey before we close for this? No, I think that this, um, as always, the conversation with you, there's a meander that happens that underscores the point. So I think we've had an opportunity to go to several real life situations, which I always find most relatable instead of someone just telling me theories and um, that kind of thing is if you can bring in a story where something has made a difference for you or for someone else, it can be very instructive. And I know that's what your listeners go for too. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's always food for the soul. (laughs) Hopefully someday we can do it again in person. Yeah. Yeah. And the book is Mindfulness um, by Lanny Mulrath and Domio Satter-Burke. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Really? And it's in the conscious care guides. You mm-hmm. no longer have to be an idiot to read it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, awesome, awesome book. You know, the chapters, Making Friends with Afflictive Emotions. You know, oh, that's mind- good. That's good. Relationship, yeah. Ethics. This is um, it's a, a wonderful resource. I'm, I'm glad I found it. In the- Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad it was presented to me to do some work on. So real pleasure. Hmm. So thank you again for everything you do, for all the, the guidance and, uh, and the conversations we've had over the years. Yes, and same to you. Thanks, Howard. Well, let's hear it for more mindfulness in our lives and in our world. Go get that book, Mindfulness by Lanny Mulrath. Uh, you will not regret it. So what's going on? Garden News just uh, spent an hour this morning mowing all the areas where we're not growing plants, all the sort of meadow areas that have become way overgrown. Um, Blueberries are doing great. And I got three blackberries yesterday, which isn't much, but it's something. And the other thing is the basil is really coming in strong, way more than we can use. So if you're in the area and you like pesto, uh, hit me up, hj at plantyourself.com. We we got an eggplant and we had uh, visitors, guests this weekend, and the garden was really so beautifully supportive of the, uh, the work we were doing. It was a kind of a spiritual retreat, and the garden was, uh, was one of the stars of the show. So thank you, Gaia, Mama, Mama Pacha, Pachamama, Gaia, Mother Earth, um, the circle of life that supports this garden, that supports all of us. Um, we appreciate it. In movement news, um, going to Denver this weekend for the uh, Grand Masters Ultimate National Championships for Ultimate Frisbee. Um, did a long run on Saturday in a scrimmage, and then yesterday went out and ran for about an hour at lunchtime, and I'm going out for another hour, two hours this evening just to keep my legs in shape, keep, the, keep everything oiled and moving. And I've kind of been neglecting the strength work, honestly, and I have not done nearly as much of the base yoga from Monkey Bar Gym as I probably need to. So I'm saying it right here. It's now 11 o'clock um, at noon. I'm going to do a good 30 minutes of base just to uh, to give my body the kind of realignment that it needs in order to function properly. 
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chali, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.